You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hey everyone, I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. I've been blogging at MessyJesusBusiness.com since 2010. Messy Jesus Business, the blog, and now the podcast, explores how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. Our listener survey is open and accepting responses. Head over to MessyJesusBusiness.com and give us your input. Thanks! Now, on to our guest. Stephen P. Millies is director of the Bernadine Center and associate professor of public theology at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. During the fall 2020 semester, he is the Pierre Teilhard de Chardin Visiting Fellow in Catholic Studies at Loyola University Chicago's Joan and Bill Hank Center for the Catholic Intellectual Heritage. His most recent book was Good Intentions, A History of Catholic Voters' Road from Roe to Trump. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, we discuss several timely issues in this highly politicized ecosystem. We examine how church life is political, the interplay of sin and polarities, the importance of trusting divine timing, and our jobs as Catholics working on the assembly line on the project of building God's reign. We also dive down into how liturgy and rituals of church and politics build bonds. And, believe it or not, we talk about sports, too. Enjoy. Welcome, Steve. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, I always start off my interviews with with kind of the question about your journey. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you would tell us a little bit of how you got to this point of who you are today. I'm seeing you through the Zoom screen sitting in your office at Catholic Theological Union, where I know you're a professor and chair of the Bernadine Center. And uh, I know you wear many other hats as well as a public theologian. Bunches. Uh, you know, that, that's kind of the, the fun and exciting part of trying to imagine an answer to your question that would take less than an hour. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's, uh, I, I suppose I'd have to say that uh, if I were to try to answer the question succinctly, uh, I, I would have to answer it in sort of thematic ways and just choose a few. And, and one certainly has to be Chicago. I'm, I'm from here. Um, I left here 25 years ago to go study at Catholic University, and then from there moved to South Carolina, where I taught in the, in the USC system for 15 years. Um, but it's an interesting journey so far that has started here and led back to a place where I not only have a job that I think is ideal for me, but I 
uh, live 12 minutes from the front door of the house I grew up in and mm. have been able to re-experience all of the things that launched me uh, onto this trajectory that I'm on already. Something else I think I'd mentioned, you know, I came out of uh, what in the 70s and 80s uh, we would have called a very typical white ethnic Catholic urban background. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom's family is all Polish. My dad's family is German-Irish mostly. Um, but, you know, I came out of uh, an environment where we were encouraged to be very serious about school. My parents didn't let us work when we were in high school. Uh, we were expected to do well in school because they didn't need us to go earn money to put food on the table. So we might as well make something of ourselves. Hmm. Uh, and, and very, you know, despite the fact that we, we weren't comfortable by any stretch of the imagination, but we were comfortable enough that we could be very working class about our schooling, mm -hmm. uh, I think is the way I'd put it. Uh, and in those days, you know, among my earlier memories, I'm certainly old enough to remember before, but I, I can remember being Polish in Chicago when John Paul was elected. Mm. And, and it made a big impression on me that that was a big deal. Uh, I oftentimes say, too, that um, living in Chicago, we would turn on the news at night and see John Paul engaged in the world as a pastor and as a public figure. And we would see Cardinal Bernadine engaged in the world as a pastor and a public figure. And then we would go to our local parish church on Sunday and hear those same two names named in the Eucharistic prayer. Mm. Um, and I, I have often said that I've wondered why more people don't uh, see the world the way that I do uh, hmm. in terms of this vital connection uh, between uh, how we live together in the church and how we live together in the world. Uh, so I, I'm delighted to be in a position at CTU uh, where I get to play in that sandbox all the time in a city that I love, surrounded by my family. Uh, I got a wife and I got some children while I was away from Chicago, but they agreed to come back here. Uh, so we all get to live here rooting for the Chicago White Sox, which I also have to mention. <laughs> It's not quite so penitential this year as it often is, but, uh, <laughs> okay. but for the most part, it has been. I think sports in a pandemic feels kind of penitential. <laughs> I have to agree for as well as the White Sox are doing with, uh, as of this moment, we're talking the, the best record in the American League. Uh, I'm barely paying attention. Mm. Uh, it's hard to get excited about a game you know you can never go to. Yeah, yeah. For me, that's the fun of sports, is going and being in a crowd, so. Well, it, it's a kind of ecclesia, right? I mean, it's a place where we go and do a kind of liturgy. Yeah, yeah, amen. I really, actually, uh, it's interesting you say that because uh, several years back, I, the first time I attended the Chicago Marathon, I had this sense that I had just, it was very similar as attending uh, a prayer vigil or a protest, but it was the Chicago Marathon. And yeah. but the beauty of the marathon versus a political protest, or you know, <laughs> was was that there were no counter protesters. Everyone there was truly there to cheer on everybody else, and that felt so spiritual to me. I loved it. I yeah. had a professor at Catholic U, a political theorist who's retired from there now. I was his TA my second year there, and. Um, when he was explaining Rousseau, uh, I was, I'm a political theorist by training, not a theologian. That's a whole other conversation. But he, Rousseau has this concept that we translated into English as fellow feeling. And, and it's more than empathy. It, it is really, a, it's that feeling you're describing. And uh, this professor used to describe it as the feeling that you get at the beginning of a marathon. Mm. 
Uh, this, this sudden sense that rushes over everyone who's about to start running, that we're all about to do the same thing. And we've been training separately, but we've come together in a space uh, hmm. to share the same experience. And you know that uh, the, the Greeks had a word for that. It's synesthetic friendship. Uh, hmm. You know, we, we behold one another beholding the same good together. Hmm. And in that act, we become a kind of friend to one another, even if we don't know each other's names. That's beautiful. Is that the same sort of oneness we're talking about in, in our Catholicity? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that is what we attempt to reproduce with some success in, in the work of, of the Mass, uh, right? Both in the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, uh, we come to these summits together, these dramatic peaks, and the Mass is drama. There's no mistaking that. Mm -hmm. We come to these peaks of synesthesis, of, of fellow feeling, of, of feeling ourselves linked together in something. That's the reason why the Second Vatican calls it, Council calls the Eucharist the source and the summit of Christian experience that then we hope, we hope, we bring outside the wall, the four walls of the sanctuary, yeah. uh, and 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 bring to the world. That's that's the goal of Christian life. That's why we do this stuff. Uh, it's also one of the reasons why I'm kind of fascinated by politics because I think in the world as it's constituted today, the sort of world that we have lived in since the Protestant Reformation and the rise of the modern nation state, it is in a way the Second Vatican Council recognized and Cardinal Bernadine recognized too. It is dramatically on us. It mm. is profoundly our responsibility in a way unprecedented in human experience, really, to, to live that sense of communio into mm. the world. Uh, the Catholic Church does an imperfect job of that. Um, <laughs> but, but it is trying. what we've been commissioned to do through the sacraments, right? So from our baptism, well, there's all the sacraments of initiation, I think especially of confirmation though, and how we were really anointed to go forth and build the reign of God yeah. um, by our participation. So what, what gets in the way of us doing this well, from your point of view? Sin. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Definitely. And, yeah. and, and how do we work at that? I mean, like, uh, what, what's, what do you think the Spirit's inviting us to? I mean, I'm just, I mean, we're, we're having this conversation um, mid-September 2020. Uh, we're a little ways away from another deciding presidential election in our nation's history. And um, I'm also conscious that it seems as if the polarization that we've been griping about for a couple decades now is, is getting incredibly more intense, more heated. Uh, last week, I had someone tell me that they think we're actually headed towards a type of civil war, which would be horrific. And, and I wonder about other schisms that, that might be sort of percolating in, in our church as well. So like, uh, the context, we're, we're in a messy place right now as, as a church and as a society, both. And yeah, what do you, what do you sense, Mr. Millie's, is, the, is the, the invitation that the Spirit has for us at this point? Let me give a long answer, if I can. Of course. Uh, a little wide-ranging. I had a dear friend, uh, his birthday would have been he always liked to say he shared his birthday with mary and if she felt like you know she needed to have a birthday that was fine too but he was 93 when he died last year he was a priest of the diocese of charleston an eccentric fellow uh 
prone to be outspoken, uh, a thorn in the side of every Bishop of Charleston since the sixties. Um, and he knew Cardinal Bernadine quite well too. That was sort of what brought us together. Uh, he did an STD in Rome in the seventies, around the time John Paul was elected. And he used to like to talk about a, a letter he came across in the archive in the Vatican. And it was a letter from, I never remember the Pope, but it was a letter from uh, Cardinal Bellarmine. Robert Bellarmine, the Jesuit saint, the, the figure that we identify so much with the Council of Trent. And the letter was a complaint to the Pope that said in substance, it's been 50 years since the Council of the Trent, since the Council of Trent, will the church ever implement the council? Hmm. And, you know, from where we are today, Trent is this enormous uh, experience in the life of the church, and it's something the Second Vatican Council has not yet really displaced in terms of its weight and its influence on how we practice what Catholicity is. And the point of all of that is that I think that we're in a growing pains moment uh, that has to be measured in centuries. Mm. Uh, one of the temptations of this moment we live in for the first time in human history, that we are all so profoundly responsible for the world, each of us individually, is we tend to want to think of things in the scale of our own human lives. Mm -hmm. The reality is, I think, that the world and the church and the spirit think on a different scale of time. Mm -hmm. And so these things that we are living through right now uh, if I can borrow from St. Paul, these are just birthing pains of something that is coming, right? The, yeah. the world is crying out as in the pains of labor. Uh, and something is coming from all of this that in faith and in hope, I think, is a great thing for the story of salvation history and is a great thing for the human family. But it doesn't come without pain uh, and it doesn't come without conflict. Uh, we are right now on the very sharpest part of the fulcrum, I think, mm. between the pre-modern world and everything that the modern world tells us. A world that was built on vertical hierarchies, top yeah. down, uh, and a modern world that thinks more in terms of horizontal sharedness, right? Uh, mm -hmm. A shared sense of community and uh, a leveled Power. egalitarian kind of, yeah. um, we are right at the, the point where those two axes meet. And oh. it's a point of maximum tension. And everything that has happened for the last 500 years tells us which way things are going. Huh. But uh, human beings being what we are, we are entrenched in the past as much as we inherit great things from the past and are blessed by memory of the past. The past is also a burden. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be frightening to let go of the past. Many people have a hard time mm -hmm. letting go of the past, especially if they have benefited mm -hmm. from where they have found themselves socially or culturally or economically or politically in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot at stake in this moment. Um, but if we are believers, um, um, unless we have that semi-Pelagian mindset that Francis talks about, that we think we're in control, that we think, as the president tells us, that God needs our help to win the election or something like that. Uh, I, I often like to speak of this in terms of an eschatological confidence, uh, that we just have to uh, boldly feel like we won the world 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem, uh, mm -hmm. and the rest is just things settling 
and falling into place. And it's going to take far longer than a human lifetime, even if mm. you're fortunate, as my friend was fortunate to live to 93. Mm. What is the name of your friend? Father Peter Clark. Father Peter Clark. Pray for us. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Pray for us. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. And be yeah, and a great assessment. I'm kind of captured by your imagination of, or, you know, well, description of how the dust is still settling, like you said there at the end, of what Christ established. The, the kingdom of God is here and now, and both, you know, and is to come. The both and is real. We're living in this place of paradox and tension, and that that is our, our spiritual and human existence. But like how we can ultimately, the sin erupts in us as a human race when we give into our fears and we stop living out of the space of like, we are redeemed, actually. We are redeemed now. This world is redeemed. God is good. Like, let's proclaim the good news and help all people know the, the, the liberation that, that has been given to us. And how different our world, our, our church, our society, everything would look if we were really living like we truly are redeemed, like we truly believe that we are redeemed. Yep. So that's such a beautiful invitation and reminder for us. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, as, as a theologian, I know sometimes you find yourself definitely like at that crux on the, on the axis, right? Of like, whoo, um, they're, they're, you're feeling the tension and the heat from both sides, people that are super devoted to the traditions, other people who are super super devoted to what's possible <laughs> and what's emerging. And so I, I suspect, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that this is a messy, messy discipleship for you to be someone that's part of those conversations. You'd think that, but no, I can't really explain why. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I have this uh, joke with some friends of mine, some of whom I think you know, who get a lot of heat online uh, mm -hmm. from people, hate mail, and, you know, just, I mean, bad stuff. And, and I often say, you know, I, I really feel very left out. I don't get any of that stuff. <laughs> and maybe it's just because I haven't, you know, said the right things yet. I don't know. But I, I think that, you know, I mentioned others a moment ago. I don't want to really draw comparisons. Everybody's thing is their own thing. But I, I've always felt a real clarity about what you just said, that there's not that much to worry about, hmm. that how I bring forth the city of God is my problem, but the city of God is not my problem. Wow. And, you know, God will take care. It's all, it's all fine. And it, it gives me a feel, I mean, I can be quite provocative, uh, certainly on Twitter, and, and even a little cheeky and snide. I'll, I'll make that confession here and beg your absolution if you've read anything, uh, <laughs> you and your listeners. Um, but really, I, it's, not, it's never hard for me to come back to dialogue and to a real desire to engage the other. And, and I have to add this, that it's, it's not only a faith conviction. One of the things that I've come to understand that I think, and, and I, I want to put it that way, you know, writing and thinking is, I, I often think, just a process of coming to understand what you have thought all along, but you understand it imperfectly along the way until you get there. One of the things that I have come to understand that I think is that our life inside the church is political. And I, I want to be very clear about what I mean by that. Politics is not the partisanship. It's not the division. It's not the polarization. Politics is the human hope for the common good unearthed through discourse and dialogue. 
right? It's the building of community. That's what it's been since the time of the Greeks. And the way in which we do or are supposed to do politics here in a constitutional state like the United States, a republic, quite properly, uh, the way we are supposed to do politics here is precisely, it's a mirror image of our life inside the church. Our life inside the church where we are all primarily a community of the baptized, whatever else our vocation and whatever else our ministry might be. Uh, our first calling is a baptismal calling, just as the highest title in the United States of America is citizen. Uh, everything else that we do um, is shaped around the idea that every member of the community is valued equally fully as the purpose of the community. Each person, each citizen is the reason the church is here. It's the reason the Republic is here. When we fail to be guided by those principles, uh, and I'm thinking, for example, of some of the um, police violence that we see, mm -hmm. which I think gives us a really good opportunity to think about what's going on in our community and, and what we've lost hold of and what we have forgotten. Every police officer who has misused the power of that office is wearing a flag on their shoulder whose purpose is to be a reminder that they serve the people yeah. and that the people are never the enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, the people never are the problem. Even when a police officer is being assaulted, even in a moment of arrest, this incident is a problem, but the people are never the enemy. And there are no enemies inside the church either. Uh, we, we have to really hold fast to that commitment. And for whatever reason, I've always been, been very clear about that. Uh, I think teaching is an advantage. You want to reach every student. Uh, every student who enters the classroom has a right to be there and has an equal claim on my attention. Uh, parenthood, I think, is good for that. Uh, <laughs> but in all of these ways, you know, we need to find these reminders in order to help ourselves really function in these spaces, these wonderful spaces that we have access to that are defined by the fact that each single person is the whole reason the thing exists. Wow. And yeah. if, it, if it were only one person, that would be enough. Yeah. What is that, I mean, <laughs> that cliche of like Jesus, if Jesus, um, if it was just you on earth, Jesus would have still died, like right. come and gave his right. life. Right. And, and, but for somehow, for some reason, well, I'm guessing sin, back to that again, uh, in our human life, we're totally tainted and we forget that it's, we're meant to be about the other yeah. and every other has full value um, and worth and needs to be honored as such. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, th this is another thing, I mean, where I guess it could be messy, except it's not. Um, we are never going to cure the problem of sin. Hmm. And, and so that's actually good news um, because it, it should set a realistic upper limit on what we want out of the church and on what we want out of politics. Hmm. Uh, because, um, you know, to the degree that we are all from time to time disappointed in the church, for whatever reason, um, the church, the visible church is a human institution. Uh, 
It's made up of all of these sinners. What was the first thing we heard Pope Francis say in that first interview he gave after he was elected? Who is Jorge Mario Bergoglio? I am a sinner. Mm -hmm. What an extraordinary and yet what an utterly unsurprising thing to say because it's the first thing that matters. And it's also very important too. I think a lot of times we bring a lot of hope to politics. Uh, to overcome injustice, to bring about peace, to do all things that I think are wonderful. And, and yet I've read my St. Augustine. Uh, and and it's, it's, not, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, finally, you talk about this idea of, uh, of discipleship, I think way back at the beginning of this conversation. Um, you know, I, I, I'm often, um, I, I spent a long time 20 years ago, uh, going through and reading uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's stuff, mm-hmm. who, who I think uh, confronted a lot of these things in a way that's um, provocative. His, his response to it certainly was provocative, but it was real and it came from a place of understanding the limits of human goodness mm-hmm. uh, and the cost of discipleship. Um, the grace that's not cheap is the grace that comes when you've recognized um, that we can't fix it. That it's, it will remain imperfect on this side of the eschaton, until the eschaton. But my task is to do my part to bring forth the city of God, the mm-hmm. city of God to take care of itself. Mm-hmm. And the part we usually play, or maybe the part we always play, is not ever about ourselves. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, we, we only discover, and that's why community is, 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 the, is the sine qua non here, right? I mean, it's, it's the essential part that these things are disclosed to us only in those settings we were talking about at the beginning, in, in these moments that overcome the limitations of our individuality and, and the, the alluring uh, deception of our uh, separateness from mm. one another. Mm. Uh, the, the world is filled with things that will distract us into thinking that, uh, but we finally really only discover that truth of, of what things are. Um, I think the greatest teacher actually is family life. Uh, the greatest teacher is being a child. Uh, hmm. The greatest teacher is being a sibling. Uh, these universal experiences that practically everyone has had, many times some better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, you know, th- these relationships are the places where we learn that. Uh, and it's only, I don't know, I don't, somewhere along the line in adulthood that we start doing the forgetting, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, um, you know, I'm really hearing this great um, depth of trust and and affection even for for the the bigger picture and and for the fact that god's got it and and we're here to to cooperate with god's vision god's plan and we can trust we can trust in you know god's providential nature um even though it gets really messy and divided and complicated or it's hard to to love our enemy or even hear their their perspective and point of view because it's so disturbing and uncomfortable um but but it's in that that um that we we can find some uh, some experience of the sacred because it's about the other. Hmm. I've often wanted to joke too that um, you know there's a difference between a, a blue collar spirituality and a white collar spirituality. That a, a sort of a working class point of view on all of this uh, is one that has us all working on the same assembly line, 
elbow to elbow and the task may be menial and it may be repetitive and it might not really feel <laughs> like we're getting anywhere. Um, but on the Here other I hand, go. Get feeding the yeah. hungry again. Here I go, yeah. forgiving that annoying person again. Exactly. Over and over. We really are contributing to an end product. Even if we're only doing one small part by fitting one part in or turning one screw or, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you know, um, and you know, I've, I've got a white collar job now too, so I, I, I shouldn't say too much, but you know, <laughs> The myth of, 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 of the white collar point of view is that the individual entrepreneur is going to reinvent everything mm. and is going to solve all of the world's problems. Um, uh, and, you know, without uh, imposing too much class thinking on it, I, I just will say that, you know, I think that's a helpful way to try to, to think about this thing that we're talking about. Uh, it's not a matter of an individual achiever. It's not a matter of uh, reinventing the wheel. Uh, it is a matter of uh, taking on board history that we've received, the tradition that we're a part of, interrogating it, uh, thinking about it, and then responding uh, to the signs of the times that we're in as well as our consciences can tell us how to try to do the work that's in front of us, the task that's right here with as much integrity as possible. It's a lot of work <laughs> and good well, thing we're not alone in it. You know, yeah. that's ultimately the great, one of the many graces. Yeah. It's so, also probably though too, just the same lesson your parents and grandparents were trying to teach you when you were five. Yeah. You yeah. know, it, it's, it's in, 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 in some sense it's extremely complex, but it's also comically simple. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of what you're saying, I'm hearing so many um, principles of Catholic social teaching just kind of <laughs> ringing through here, you know, and here's the, the call to community and family and participation right there. And, and even the, the dignity of work and the worker. So um, yeah, thank you so much for speaking of that. Uh, one last question. Yeah. Um, well, actually two. The first is <laughs> for you, um, what is messy about all this? You said it wasn't messy before, but I, there was, what is messy about being a disciple and, and proclaiming the God's reign? Just for me personally, mm -hmm. I am tremendously lucky to be in this job. Um, if I could have invented a job for myself, um, it would be to have a center like this where I get to play in these two sandboxes of religion and politics and talk in a way about the Catholic social tradition in a way that bridges between the two um, in an academic institution where I have an opportunity to teach and to publish and all that other stuff. And I would have put it on the South side of Chicago. So I couldn't possibly be happier th than I am right now. Um, but, the temptation of where I am right now, and this is just speaking, I guess, in terms of, you know, purely personal spiritual struggle, um, is to say yes to everything mm. and to become that entrepreneur that I was talking about a moment ago, who has, uh, Mark Francis, our president here at CTU, has this joke, whenever I come to him with another idea, he'll say, you're always thinking. And I, I hear the back end of that compliment. Uh, you know, that there's, there's a temptation to be busy uh, in a way that is, uh, is not choosing the better part. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the work is good, but I think even with all of the, the trust and the, the hope that we've talked about, uh, that, that I've always 
felt uncomfortably an easy time with. Uh, it, it is the case, nevertheless, that it, the temptation to think that if I just did one more thing, everything would be fine, that mm-hmm. temptation is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. If I just send one more tweet, the world will be better. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I so relate <laughs> as another highly ambitious person. Yeah, and how do we just constantly remain as, in a state of discernment and and foster the contemplative life and and more deeply root ourselves in God and our identity in God because ultimately that's what matters, right? Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, that's the old story about Cardinal Bernadine, right? I mean, he uh, mm. uh, had, had this dinner with uh, these two young priests he had just ordained in the 1970s and confessed to them that he never prayed, and they were outraged. Uh, they, were, they challenged him about it instantly, and he transformed his life. He gave the first hour of his day from that time in 1974 until he became too sick to do it in 1996. He gave the first hour of every day to contemplation uh, and just being quiet. Uh, sometimes reading the scriptures, sometimes doing the liturgy of the hours, and he would admit sometimes falling asleep. Mm. Um, but the time belonged to God, and whatever God wanted to do with it was fine. Mm. Uh, and, and I think just something that simple, uh, recognizing that you can carve the time out, uh, even from a busy life, uh, mm-hmm. even if you're the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago, uh, carving that time out is, is finally, I think it's the only answer. Mm, and maybe being a disciple of Jesus, holiness is our main priority. Yeah, it's, it is really the source and summit of, <laughs> of what we do. It's what, it's what we're heading for. And um, from, to, to put it in very old-timey churchy language, from the fount of sacramental graces, we get it. Mm. And we are just meant to return that water someplace else at the end. Mm, that's beautiful. Wow. So what else would you like to add as we conclude uh, that's burning in you and you think the, you know, the regular spiritual seeker might just want to hear and understand about? Well, you mentioned the election. I mentioned before, I think that we are in a critical moment and it's not just because of the election and it's not just because of American politics. It's because the world's in a critical moment. Um, I think it's terribly important for everyone within the sound of your voice and mine, everyone we speak to, to understand clearly that this is a world that needs all hands on deck. Mm. Um, You know, the alarm is sounding uh, in any direction you look at, to fires on the Western coast, a pandemic, unemployment, hunger, uh, the need for medical care, uh, migration, I can go on, and it's depressing to think that I can go on. Uh, The world needs all hands on deck, and it certainly needs all believers. Mm. Uh, Now is the time, if you have ever thought about becoming an active participant in the community of citizens uh, and taking what you believe beyond the four walls of the sanctuary, beyond the quiet space where you meet the Lord in prayer, if it has ever seemed to you that there might be a place for you in a phone bank uh, or going door to door, or I'll say this, the thing we need most, being really honest, is anyone who is young, anyone who is under 60 and who is not in a risk category, we need poll workers Hmm. very badly. It's the little nuts and bolts stuff, 
the stuff you can do on the assembly line. Mm -hmm. uh, but we really need people to give themselves to the process because the world won't get turned around any other way. Mm. Uh, we need people to become a part of it and then to stay a part of it, to live in the world as much as to live in the church. Amen. Let's get to work. <laughs> and holiness and in the building the kingdom. Oh, Punch thank in. you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much for being with us and Messy Jesus Business. My great pleasure. I invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. Steve mentioned that we are in a critical moment in human history, a time when all hands are needed on deck to assist in the building of the reign of God. Pope Francis's recent encyclical, Fratelli Tutti, is a message about how to love our brothers and sisters everywhere. Paragraph 276 in the document echoes much of what Steve and I spoke about. If you can, I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply as you listen and pray. Notice if certain words or phrases from this church document stick out for you. Consider if there's a particular message that God wants you to hear today. A reading from Fratelli Tutti. The church, while respecting the autonomy of political life, does not restrict her mission to the private sphere. On the contrary, she cannot and must not remain on the sidelines in the building of a better world or fail to reawaken the spiritual energy that can contribute to the betterment of society. It is true that religious ministers must not engage in the party politics that are the proper domain of the laity, but neither can they renounce the political dimension of life itself, which involves a constant attention to the common good and a concern for integral human development. The church has a public role over and above her charitable and educational activities. She works for the advancement of humanity and of universal fraternity. She does not claim to compete with earthly powers, but to offer herself as a family among families. This is the church, open to bearing witness in today's world, open to faith, hope, and love for the Lord, and for those whom he loves with a preferential love, a home with open doors. The church is a home with open doors because she is a mother. And in imitation of Mary, the mother of Jesus, we want to be a church that serves, that leaves home and goes forth from its places of worship, goes forth from its sacristies in order to accompany life, to sustain hope, to be the sign of unity, to build bridges, to break down walls, to sow seeds of reconciliation. That's another episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Sister Julia Walsh, with assistance from Cherish Bedzinski.
can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, could you please do a few things? Share with your friends, subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, and leave us a review. Plus, I'd love it if you could support us on Patreon. Thanks. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. Thanks. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.